0: bitter, sour, sweet, acrid, and salty. When those are out of balance, we have disruptions to healthy sexual function, particularly omega-3 fatty acids. Lack of that in the diet can actually disrupt that pleasure pathway. Something like spinach isn't gonna be a Viagra pill, but it does operate on the the same mechanism. Refined sugars do a number of things hormonally in the body. They cause insulin resistance, which lead to imbalances in testosterone.
1: let
2: Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I am super excited about today's episode, friends. In reviewing my catalog of episodes, I realized that I have really not done much service to sexual health and wellness, and that needs to change. (laughs) So I recently had an episode with John Gray that was super popular with you guys, and today's episode is equally enlightening, all about an Eastern-Western approach to sexual health, diet for sex, So many things. I really enjoy Christine's book, Diet for Sex. And then connecting with her, she just knew so much. So definitely let me know what you think of today's episode. Also, stay tuned. There is a new product that I'm trying, in the sexual health world, and I really, really like it. I don't have the details yet to share, but I should have that next week, so stay tuned for that. But basically, if you like sexual oils, you're gonna want this product. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash diet for sex. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily very high quality, awesome biohacking content tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really wanna bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just wanna break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash MDLogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin. So you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel their vitamin C serum. They have shampoo and conditioner skincare lines for every skin type and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the golden globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is a blend of a few topics that I really, really love. So I have done actually only one episode on this show. On traditional Chinese medicine, and I had been wanting to dive deeper into it, and in particular kind of go down certain tangents and rabbit holes in traditional Chinese medicine, basically go down some specifics. And so something was presented to me that was the perfect blend, because it's another topic that I am personally a little bit obsessed with, but have not done an episode on, and that is sex. So how perfect is it that we are here today with Christine Delozier? She wrote a book called Diet for Great Sex. Oh, and of course, diet, which you guys know we talk about diet all the time on this show. The subtitle is Food for Male and Female Sexual Health. Not only does it have a really epic cover art, I must say, but I read this book and oh my goodness, it was mind-blowing. I learned so, so much about... Well, first of all, about the history of sex, the history of how it's treated in culture, particularly in Asian culture, and its manifestations with diet, with sexuality, orgasms, so many things. And then beyond that, the role of diet in our sexual health, the role of traditional Chinese medicine, the role of I don't even know if I can say aphrodisiacs. Is that how you say it? I never say that word out loud. Aphrodisiacs. (laughs) So there was just so much in here. I have so many questions. I'm just really excited. So Christine, thank you so much for being here.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really happy to be here. So I will let listeners know a little bit
2: about you. So you studied biology and psychology at the University of Rochester. You hold a dual master's degree in acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine, and also a master's in counseling. And like I said, you do have this book, Diet for Great Sex. So I'm excited to just dive in. But to start things off, I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about your personal story. Were you always interested in sex? Did you have some sort of life event that made you more interested in it, especially its role and its connection to traditional Chinese medicine? Basically, what led you to write this book?
0: Well, I'll tell you, underlying all of this is my love of food and all things natural. As far as my approach to health, it's, you know, I've always had this idea that The best way to promote our well-being is through natural means you know the food we eat how we treat ourselves and so that's kind of underlying it all plus i'm a foodie and you know i love making food taking pictures of food and all that so the sex part actually came kind of later to that i became an acupuncturist and like many acupuncturists i was treating a lot of back pain headaches, neck pain when I first started my practice. And one day, one of my patients who I was treating for back pain came in and asked me if I could help him to have stronger erections. So I said, "Sure, let's give it a whirl. I don't treat it a lot, but we'll we'll see." So, he had such good results. He was so happy. It made such an impact on his intimate relationship with his wife. And then I had a succession of success stories and, you know, treating sexual health is difficult to treat with, whether you're talking about conventional or alternative medicine, it's not easy to treat. And the fact that we were getting such good results made me want to specialize in this because it brought so much benefit to my patients. I kind of stumbled across it. It wasn't really something that I, you know, I mean, hey, I love sex just like the next person and I definitely want to always have better sex, but it was more something that came to me. That's kind of how I got here. And then, you know, I have a history. When I was an undergrad, I trained to be a research scientist at the University of Rochester. And so I brought that into my practice. And I really wanted to see what science had to say about this relationship. I knew inherent, you know, intuitively that, you know, diet would affect Sex just like it affects everything else in our lives, you know. But I wanted to see what the science had to say about it. So I kind of poured over a ton of research in writing the book. And, you know, it's an evidence based look, but kind of with a a cheeky, kind of fun approach to it.
2: I love that so much. And yeah, that's something I should comment on in the book. It really was a blend of science, of personal experience and definitely a very approachable read, shall I say. So there are so many directions we could go with this. Just quick question about what you just spoke about though. So with the acupuncture, when you started treating sexual issues with acupuncture, how is that addressing sexual health? Like what does it do to the body that can address those issues.
0: So let let me just preface that by saying that great sex from a physiological perspective is when we have abundant blood flow to our genitals. It's when our nerves are firing strong rapid impulses to and from the genitals, you know, those signals of pleasure, those signals of arousal, for lubrication, for blood flow, all those things. And it's when our sex hormones are balanced. So when we think about something like Chinese medicine, which operates on the meridians of the body, we stimulate points on the meridians to move the chi. It's very simple and, you know, on a simple and basic level. But those meridians correspond with the nervous system and the vascular system. So when we put a needle in, we're stimulating nerve pathways. And the reason this is important is because, well, for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons it's important is because every substance produced by the body. Every hormone, every neurotransmitter is ultimately controlled by the nervous system. And also, when we put needles in, we direct the body's attention to certain areas and we increase blood flow. So acupuncture, just to give you an example of one point that I tend to use with my patients is called REN1. It's a point that's on the perineum in between the vagina and anus or the testicles and anus and it's a major crossing point of nerves associated with sexual function. So from a biomedical perspective, we're stimulating those very nerve pathways uh, associated with sex. And in doing so, we increase lubrication, blood flow, sexual excitability and sensitivity. From a Chinese medicine perspective, we are accessing the the root chi. It's the the lowest point on the the midline, and it's the Ren, the Ren meridian, which is the embodiment of that, that feminine yin essence. It's the root of the, of the yin, if you will. And the yin is the basis for blood and blood flow. That
2: first point that you spoke about, was that what you spoke about in the book? That was the perineum? Was that the same thing?
0: The perineum, yep.
2: Per- perineum, okay. So that's just an area in the body.
0: Yep. It's yeah, it's just an area where a lot of nerves cross, you know, that are associated with sexual function, so with the acupuncture, because
2: I haven't actually talked about acupuncture on this show, I don't think either, is the basic idea, because hearing you say it that way, is the basic idea just creating a stimulus to the body that the body then reacts to?
0: Well, you know, yes, you know there's no there there are no drugs or anything contained within the needles. They're simply stimulating nerve pathways and, you know, stimulating those local blood vessels and, and nerve pathways that end up connecting with the central nervous system and, and, and whatnot. And when we're talking about something like musculoskeletal conditions, we're also stimulating the body's healing response. So just like if you were to cut your finger, your body would detect tissue damage and it would direct the appropriate agents to repair those tissues. When we put a needle in, we're putting it in a little deeper than the superficial aspect of the skin. We put it further in and it stimulates that body. the body's healing response in the same way. You get a similar increase in those agents which repair your body's tissues.
2: And this is something I never thought about before, but does the effect with acupuncture, is it different or is it more potent if you are in... The fasted or the fed state, or your baseline state of health, does one make it more potent or more powerful than the other?
0: Some people experience a more powerful chi moving effect in the fasted state because there's nothing to slow down the chi, if you will. You know, having said that, a person's baseline definitely contributes. You know, acupuncture has been found in research to be adaptogenic, and what I what I mean when I say that is that. If you give acupuncture to people who have high blood pressure, their blood pressure tends to go down following acupuncture. If you give people who have low blood pressure acupuncture, their blood pressure tends to increase after. It has a differing effect on different people. If you were to measure the baseline dopamine levels of, let's say, 10 people before acupuncture, and half of those people had a headache or some sort of pain condition beforehand, and then you measure post acupuncture the group who was in pain prior to that and this is according to research their dopamine levels would increase more than the patients who did not have pain to begin with when did
2: acupuncture because i know now like insurance plans a lot of them are now including it was that a more recent development that it's starting to be more accepted by conventional medicine
0: yeah it is and it's it's based on all of the growing research surrounding it however You know, there's not a lot of money in acupuncture research for sure, but there's enough evidence now that it works, especially for certain conditions. We know that it works. It's recognized by the World Health Organization and the National Institute of Health. But the body of research that's largest is on things like back pain, headaches, neck pain, and a few other, a handful of other conditions. I found from my own experience that it was great for sexual health, but there's not, there are a few studies that I found that backed that up, but not a huge body of research. But that's why it's being recognized, is because of the research behind it.
2: I mean, it would totally make sense with what you said about, you know, blood flow being so important in sexual health. And this is just one more random question. You're mentioning high blood pressure. Does blood pressure correlate to blood flow? Like do people with higher blood pressure have faster or higher blood flow?
0: Well, no. I mean, if you have higher blood blood pressure, it often reflects plaque accumulation. And remember those, especially when we're talking about sex, the arteries of the penis, vagina, and clitoris are among the smallest in the body and so they get clogged the fastest. So, signs of signs of heart disease or, you know, cardiovas- cardiovascular disease, plaque accumulation show up in sex first before you see them in the rest of the body.
2: Oh wow, that is so interesting. <laughs> that completely makes sense. And does the clitoris have the most nerves of anything in the body? I feel like I often hear that.
0: I, I think so. Yeah. I think I've read that a few times. Yeah, it is. That is true. And as a matter of fact, I think I, I put that in my book as well.
2: <laughs> I feel like I know people have said that. I feel like I might've read it in your book too. But yeah, that is something that you talk about in your book is this basically sex triad of hormones, the nerve pathway, and the blood flow. Because I feel like most people, when they think sexual health, they probably just think hormones. I mean, they might think Blood flow. But I, I don't think most people have that much of a comprehensive picture of all of those things. How are all of those related? Like, is it chicken and egg? Does one typically go awry before the other? Do they typically all get messed up at the same time? So, what is this triad?
0: Yeah, it's, it is kind of it is kind of chicken and egg. So, our nerve health, for example, how quickly our nerves fire to and from the genitals how strong those signals are affect things like orgasm they affect pleasure they affect affect clitoral sensitivity and penile sensitivity when we're in the act and so those can be affected by a number of things like just even environmental pollutants or you know type 2 diabetes but just as those are suffering the effects of type 2 diabetes and the resulting oxidative stress that comes with it so too are blood vessels so blood vessels suffer that those same ill effects on the integrity of the vascular walls from oxidative stress and that just kind of of comes from life life causes oxidative stress our environment causes oxidative stress what we put into our bodies are our diets and the, our lack of exercise causes, you know, further damage to all of those structures. So, yeah, it is kind of like a chicken and egg thing. They, they're all needed. You know, when when you see your partner naked or you are touched, your nerves need to send a signal to your brain and then your brain needs to respond. Or in some cases, it's not even your brain. It's just to the spinal cord and there's a reflective response of arousal for blood flow. and lubrication. But, you know, when we're talking about something like testosterone, if testosterone is low, that pathway is not even going to be relevant because you're, you're not aroused to begin with. You know, you're not in the mood. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, they're, they all are mutually dependent.
2: Yeah. And actually speaking to that point, you know, the role of the brain and your perception versus just the physical arousal. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Like, So when we get aroused, what is the primary driving factor? Is it our our mental perception of things or is it much more on a subconscious level? I know you talk about arousal and men versus women and how it's very underappreciated how women are aroused. And I don't know if it was in your book or if I was reading it extraneously, but I was reading about how they were looking at men versus women getting aroused and women, apparently women get aroused just as much as men, but like we don't realize that we're getting aroused, but like if they check like for physical signs, we are getting aroused. Yeah, so arousal, like what drives that?
0: Yeah, women under-report their arousal. There's a lot of, you know, cultural reasons why we do that, but um, sometimes it's not even it's not even a cognitive process. Sometimes it's just a reflexive process. So when the clitoris is stimulated or the penis is stimulated, there are nerve impulses that go to the spine, to the lumbar, lumbar and sacral spine, and just reflexively fire back and, and cause arousal, if you will. And nothing needs to be processed in the brain. That's for some, that's for part of it. So some of those signals just go to the si- spine. Some of them go to the spine and then go to the brain and are processed. And, you know, things like pleasure, you know, things like that dopamine release, you know, is an example to kind of illustrate that. The dopamine pathway in the brain is involved in orgasm and it's involved in pleasure with resp- with regard to sex. So because of the fact that that pathway is dependent on things like fats and particularly omega-3 fatty acids. Lack of that in the diet can actually disrupt that pleasure pathway, if that makes sense. So there's, yeah, there's a cognitive aspect of it and there's just a structural physiological aspect as well.
2: That's so fascinating. I mean, I'm really, really interested in the cultural implications surrounding all of this. Like, This is a very nebulous question. You probably can't quantify it in an answer, but like, do some people have more of a mental sex drive? And so, even if maybe their blood flow isn't, you know, quite on point, they're just so mentally turned on that they can, you know, get turned on and sexually perform. And then on the flip side, maybe some people who are, you know, epic health and blood flow and hormones, but just, mentally, for whatever reason, culturally, psychologically, they're not into it. So they can't really have that
0: sexual performance. Yeah. I actually read a really good book called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, if I'm saying her last name correct. But she that's, her whole book is about that stuff. It's just about how every single person is unique with regard to things like that. You know, some people don't even think about sex unless... Somebody, you know, unless they're stimulated in the clitoris, and then the thought occurs to them. But they would never think about even initiating sex with a partner. Other people see very mild nudity and all of a sudden are aroused. And that, you know, that goes for male and female arousability. So everybody's different. On average, you know, men have more visual sexual excitability, if that makes sense. Women on average tend to be slower to, it takes a little bit longer, the whole process of arousal.
2: Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I'm going to have to read that book, a whole book about it. Actually, and something else. So something you talk about a lot in your book is the history throughout Asian culture and Other cultures with sexual history? Because I think there's this idea that in like Chinese history that sex is not encouraged, but you, I mean, you paint a very different picture. What has been the history of, of sex in Chinese culture?
0: So what I was always taught, you know, even in school was that If you have too much sex, particularly males, you'll lose your essence. And every ejaculation comes with a loss of your your essence, you know, the essence of life, you know, the essence of life being embodied in sperm. And for for females, the essence of life being embodied in menses. And so it was considered to be more beneficial for women and not as damaging as it was for, for men. But when I looked in the research and looked in the history surrounding sex, I found that it wasn't always the the case. That was something that was, it was quite the opposite before Confucianism gained popularity in China. And so you had emperors who, as a standard of practice, would have over 100 concubines and second wives and consorts and that sort of thing, and they were encouraged to have sex with the concubines as much as possible because they felt that with every sexual encounter, the vaginal secretions of their partner would boost their essence. So they were gaining something. They were gaining essence and building their essence with every sexual encounter so that then on the full moon, when they had sex with the empress, they would deliver the most powerful sperm to give the strongest, most intelligent heirs possible. But this all changed as dynasties were kind of turning over. There was increasing struggle to control the people through governments and in, in, in trying to stay in power. When Confucianism kind of became popular, that was used as a tool by the government to control its citizens. And that included in their personal lives and and in sex and Confucianism had a completely different view on sex, more close, you know, that kind of led the the way for what, how it's viewed today. What was that
2: ancient sex book that you talk about in the book?
0: Oh my gosh, there were loads of them. There were loads of them. There's not even just one. There were the, the emperor's physicians would write manuals on on sex, how to have sex. I mean, there's even books, you know, like something like 36 positions in the garden, you know, like sex was written about all the time. And, you know, it was considered essential that for the happiness of a woman, that she be pleased with every sexual encounter. So that meant that they were instructed, men were instructed to read these manuals on how to please their woman, and not only that, on how to detect if they had truly had an orgasm. So, you know, you could... I guess I guess people were faking it even back then. That's amazing. <laughs> it's like, you know, you want to know she really had one, not that she's just trying to be nice to you. So yeah, so how to detect when, when she's truly had an orgasm because the worst thing was the lonely concubine who's not sexually satisfied and who's sexually frustrated. So it was a male responsibility to do that. And I, I have to say that that's something that, Males need a lot of work on in, you know, modern days. I mean, certainly we've come a long way. We're further along than we were 20 years ago uh, with attention, our attention to the importance of female pleasure and, you know, kind of equality in the bedroom, if you will. But we still have have some work to do. Yeah, I was going
2: to say those ancient texts sort of sound like modern day, like Cosmo magazines, except more superficial level today and mostly women reading for men, (laughs) So, Oh, wow. That's so funny. Well, speaking of actually the women orgasming, I don't think I've said that as a, that word before and, you know, faking it and all of that, what are the stats on women, I guess, and men, but, um, you know, or that would be ejaculation. So women's ability to orgasm, can all women orgasm from sex and the difference between like the G-spot and the clitoris What role does that play? Yeah, just what's going on with women and orgasms and sex today?
0: So according to the research, a lot more women are able to orgasm from sexual activity than are actually orgasming from sexual, you know, partner sexual activity. So according to the research, about 80 women, 80% of women are able to. And that leaves 20% behind, which is a lot, honestly but it's much less than that 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 actually are and there's a lot of reasons for that i mean we have the interpersonal reasons You, you know just like we talked about this habit of faking it that you know male ego is tied to pleasing a partner and that if she wants to let him know that he did a good job she has to fake an orgasm to let him know that he's sexually competent and that there will be problems if you know if she doesn't fake it. So there, there's a lot of pressure in some relationships to do that. And there's this this myth that female orgasm should be just as easy as male orgasm. So what that leads to is these relationships where oh it's just too much work to put in the time and effort that it takes in not only learning how to please your partner but in actually doing it because what the research shows is that males take Let's see. I forgot how many minutes it was to achieve orgasm. And it's a little bit longer when with a partner versus when they're by themselves. And then with women, it was like an average of eight minutes when they were by themselves and longer with a partner. But that was once they were fully aroused. So building up to that time took even more work. Uh, When all is said and done, a woman you know the the entire act to help her to orgasm could take 30 minutes, 45 minutes, even an hour and a lot of a lot of couples aren't aware that that's normal. And therefore there's this expectation that she should, you know, orgasm with her partner or that she should be able to orgasm from sex for example where, you know, that's that's an entirely other topic which is that physiologically structurally, the structure of the clitoris and its distance from the vagina, that distance has to be small enough to stimulate the clitoris during sex. And for that, that's only true for about 25% of women. So physiologically, only about 25% of women can, can have an orgasm from just penetration alone.
2: So to clarify the initial 20% stat, about 20% of women are not able to orgasm like without a vibrate, without anything, they just cannot orgasm?
0: That's what the research says. And I I think if you were to dissect that and look at younger populations versus older populations and the way we view sex now and female sexuality, I think that number would be much higher in younger people, if that makes sense. Like that we're losing our ability? Wait, which number would be higher? Sorry. The 80%. So the 80% 80 that can would be higher. So now it's becoming okay to to be sexual beings. You know, in the past, that's why it was so underreported, you know, sexual arousal. Because we had this notion that being horny was curvy, you know, for women, that we should be more proper and a little bit more tame in our in our sexual preferences. So it was more accepted for males to have more interesting preferences, if you will. But when they did research, they found, you know, women were were just as aroused by even the more unusual things. They just didn't report that they were. I wonder what the actual stat is
2: on the inability and I feel, I feel really bad for the people in that percent. So going back to the 25% where only in 25% of people is the clitoris, you know, physically in a location where it would get stimulated during sex. So what about the G-spot? Is that
0: is that a thing? Yeah. So the G-spot is actually the root of the clitoris. So just like at the tip of an iceberg, what you see is only a fraction of of the actual structure. So you're basically simulating a deeper level of the clitoris with the G-spot. So yeah, I mean, there's a reason women report that it's pleasurable when stimulated. Oh, okay.
2: I did not know that. I thought they were two different things. How do you feel about manual stimulation, masturbation, vibrators? Does that add to the sexual experience when you're with a partner or I guess those are different things, masturbation versus like using toys. But um, how do you feel about all of that and how it ultimately adds to a person's sexual experience You know, when they're with another
0: person? Well, put it, let's look at this. Women who report having the most orgasms with, let's say, partnered sex also report masturbating they report being comfortable talking about sex with their partner communicating with sex using toys if and when they want to you know for for some females the only way that they have ever had an orgasm is with a vibrator and they their partner may welcome the vibrator or their partner may say oh i don't i don't like that buzzing or i maybe they feel that they feel bad because they can't give their partner an orgasm, so they don't encourage their partner to use the vibrator. I think the vibrator should be welcomed if it's, if it's something that adds to the experience, you know, especially with maybe facilitating orgasm.
2: It would be a problem, I think, for me in a relationship if a vibrator, or a toy, was seen as, if it was seen as threatening. But I don't know how to, like, how you would have a dialogue about that, except just to clarify that it's... um. Helpful I don't know. Do you have patients where this is a problem?
0: Yeah, you know, I had a patient who whose partner didn't want her using a vibrator because the, it was distracting. you know it was the noise was distracting and wasn't considered sexy or arousing. Of course, as you can imagine if if the partner wasn't really accommodating in that respect, you can imagine how accommodating they were with their efforts to try to please my patient. Some lovers are selfish and and others aren't you know some make much more effort to learn about the female body and how to please it and understand that you need a little bit more care and attention sometimes a, a caring understanding partner would welcome a vibrator if their partner wanted to use one yeah or even
2: on the flip side maybe the partner would be fine with it but they're going back to that own personal cultural and insecurities the person using the vibrator could feel uncomfortable with it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I have patients who feel bad about their inability to orgasm as easily as their partner. They they themselves are their harshest judge. You know, they they their partner maybe is more encouraging and really wants to broaden their, you know, their sexual horizons. And they themselves are like, well, they, they feel uncomfortable about making their partner take so much time with them, you know? And of course... We've all had experiences with partners who weren't willing to put that effort in, you know, who just want to roll over and go to sleep and and that. So it's definitely an, an issue of, yeah, sexual inequality or inequality in the bedroom, you know. 100%.
2: I'm just thinking about how my mom would be mortified if she heard this interview
0: that I'm doing.
2: (laughs) Because I was going to say that um, that's been my experience, that um, it's actually more in my head. Like I feel bad or awkward about using a vibrator. Everybody I've been with has been very accommodating and said that it's not a problem and they don't mind, but like I'm super in my head about it. I just feel like stuff like this isn't talked about that much
0: right it's not and you know what that that's that we all need to educate ourselves on the unique issues with ourselves and our partners and you know our physiology differences in physiology and things like that the my male patients well anybody who is going to be with a female can learn about that and just they don't have to wait for an invitation or wait to be asked to use a vibrator you can bring up the subject themselves you know what i mean they can go out of their way to make their partner feel comfortable by encouraging them to do whatever they want and need to do to have a good time
2: One more point about the vibrators while we're on this topic. I would love to know your thoughts on this. I recently interviewed Dr. Stephanie Estima. She wrote a book called The Betty Body, but she has a whole section on orgasms and the health benefits of them. And she talks about how one of the potential issues of using a vibrator is that a lot of the health benefits of orgasm occur like the in-between period. So before you actually have the orgasm and that when you use a vibrator, it can be, you know, you can speed up that process. And so you're not getting all the health benefits. So I asked her, you know, if you, if you can use self-control and like hold out and have a longer time until you orgasm, would that still create the health benefits? And she agreed. But what are your thoughts on the health benefits of orgasms and sex?
0: Well, I mean, there's lots of research to support that. And, you know, we know that orgasming and sexual activity in general does have an impact on hormonal balance, for example. And the more sex we have, the better and stronger our arousal is to begin with. So we have more optimal testosterone, for example. So there are definitely those benefits. Anytime you think about hormonal benefits, that's great because you get a global effect on the body. Yeah. So I would say that, I mean, certainly the release of dopamine and getting pleasure from life. We have stressful enough lives as it is. You know, we Our productivity is through the roof. So, we are managing and multitasking throughout our days with our work, at home, and family. So, getting regular pleasure is so good for our emotional health as well.
2: To that point, exactly, because I'm all about the biohacks. And, you know, what I'm doing with this show and with my audience is I'm always like, I find tips or things that work in my life and I just have to tell everybody when it really has an effect on me. And it's really unfortunate to me that there is all of this. People just don't talk openly about sex as much because one of the things that has really, really benefited me is I was speaking about Dr. Estima. She has a seven-day orgasm challenge. So I decided to do that. And then I realized the effects were just so amazing. So I've turned it into like an everyday orgasm challenge, like basically just schedule it in, have an orgasm every single day. And the effect that it has had on me has been pretty profound, but it's something that I just, I feel like, you know, on social media and with my audience, it's hard to just go around and just like put that out there. <laughs> so um, I, um, so this is me putting that out there more. Oh, this was something I learned in your book that I did not know that I thought was fascinating. I mean, this makes me a little bit angry almost. And it's that Viagra works in females too, but it's really only prescribed for men. And the thing that I find disconcerting about that is to me, it just goes to show how much the emphasis is on male sexual pleasure and male performance in, you know, medicine and the literature. Why don't they prescribe Viagra for women? I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing health wise, but I just find it interesting that it's you know, it's a male drug.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it is. It it is infuriating. And they do need more research on females with with that. That's something that does have the potential to really enhance our intimacy and benefit our lives. I mean, we know that sexual health is very important to Our sense of well-being but we acknowledge that more for males than for females and that's you know we're just as sexual of beings and we do deserve the attention in research and in science so thank you for
2: what you're doing and, and putting that out there and um something else interesting about viagra so its mechanism of action is it blood flow is that basically what it's supporting
0: yeah, it it is. It's basically it operates on cGMP, which is like a it's a substance in the in the body that is associated with blood flow. What it does is it makes your body more susceptible and have a better blood flow response to sexual stimulus. So it doesn't cause arousability, you know, it doesn't cause arousal, rather, but it makes your body more susceptible with blood flow, and it works on this cGMP and what and also on nitric oxide, which stimulates the dilation of blood vessels. Spinach in research, after one serving of spinach, in one study, they tested salivary nitric oxide levels, and they were eight times that of baseline. So it's, you know, something like spinach isn't going to be a Viagra pill, but it does operate on the, the same mechanism, if that makes sense. And it does have a pretty strong effect. I mean, eight times baseline is pretty significant after one single serving of spinach. Hi, friends.
2: Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness, this man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light, A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought it was not doing my health That's fascinating. And I'm glad we're going the spinach route because we can dive into diet. One last thought about the Viagra was that um I did another interview recently and it was I think it was the one I did with Dr. Jacoby, who wrote a book called Sugar Crush. And his book is all about nerve impulses. I think it was him. I hope I'm not misquoting. If it was him, he was talking about the benefits of Viagra for like not sexual stuff, but basically just because of its effect on blood flow. And I, th- I think as a consequent nerve impulses. So that's, that's really interesting.
0: Oh, it is interesting. So did he say that it increased like blood flow to the brain or anything like that?
2: So I'm going to have to circle back and I can put it in the show notes and then I can let you know if it was him, it was about, cause he was saying to, <laughs> he was saying, if you want it for this reason, which was for nerve impulses and blood flow, you know, how to get it from your doctor. And he was saying, don't say that you want it for these reasons. Just say you want it for sexual performance. <laughs> like um, that's the way to get it prescribed. Have to look at it again, but going into diet. So you mentioned spinach, but maybe backtracking a little bit. I know this is a huge question, but traditional Chinese medicine and Chinese dietetics and all of that, what are the basic tenets there
0: for a healthy diet? You want foods that promote the free flow of chi and you want to limit foods that block the chi. You know, you want foods that build the chi. And, and how that is seen, you know, a balanced diet is one that represents all of the five flavors. So the five flavors are bitter, sour, sweet, acrid, and uh, let me see... Oh, salty. Yeah, salty. Okay. So, anyways, when when those are out of balance, we have disruptions to healthy sexual function. And in our modern processed food diets, we tend to represent, you know, the, the sweet flavor is overrepresented in our diets. The salty flavor is overrepresented because of all the processed foods and all the sugar and salt that they add to it. And then things like sour, which is fruit and things like bitter which comes from leafy greens are underrepresented in the body and that is what causes you know disruptions um the all of the rich greasy heavy processed foods that we eat they slow down the chi they block the chi through things like plaque accumulation and and slow it and so that's what gets in the way of course sexual health is rooted in the essence. And, you know, we want a strong essence, which is considered to be housed in the kidneys. So, you know, there are foods that, that, that strengthen the kidneys, for example, and, and whatnot. But in general, you know, as a general rule, we just want balance, if that makes sense.
2: How do you feel about desiccated organ supplements and the idea of like supports like? I ask because I take kidney every single night and I really... Love its effects on, on me personally.
0: You know, I haven't seen a lot of research on it, so I don't know. I, I, I should look into that. I think when, once we're done, I'll probably take a look and see what the research has to say on it. Because I, I don't know. I don't know scientifically what research has been done. So I take spleen and kidney.
2: I took the spleen because it has five times the amount of iron as liver, and I struggle with anemia. And it's been the first thing that has actually kept my ferritin up it's been amazing. And then the kidney I took, I take for it's high end DAO. So for histamine issues, and I often have like a high bun. So I want to take it to support my kidney, but I personally experienced a lot of benefits. So yeah, I would, I would love to look in the scientific literature on it for sure. This goes into what you were just saying. Cause I'd asked listeners if they had any questions and this relates to what you just said, Allison. she said, I've had a low libido for a while, except for a couple times a month when I'm ovulating. Up until now, I've had a pretty high sugar-filled diet. Could sugar impact
0: my sex drive? Absolutely. So refined sugars, there's all sorts of research on that. You know, refined sugars do a number of things hormonally in the body. One of the things is that they cause insulin resistance and leptin resistance, which lead to imbalances in testosterone and estrogen And so, you know, testosterone is important for libido, not only in males, but also in females. And there are lots of studies showing how refined sugars are associated with low serum testosterone and disrupted estradiol. So not only that, uh, refined sugars even disrupt testosterone in the short run. So in my book, for example, I have a date night sex menu and it's filled with foods that have been shown in research to have an immediate effect on either blood flow or, you know, th- th- so for example, there are two things. High fatty foods will sharply drop testosterone within the two hour window after eating it. So too will high sugary foods. And so you want to stay away from those for a date night, you know, a, a romantic evening. That sugar is something you want to avoid in the short term for sex and also in the long run just for major hormonal imbalance. If you want to try to offset some of those effects of the sugar, not the I mean you really shouldn't be eating a lot of refined sugar. It just has a it's just overall bad. But things like leafy greens actually help rebalance testosterone. So, we have these really stressful lives, for example, you know, we we're under a lot of pressure just like we talked about, and we go around with higher levels of cortisol, which sabotages testosterone. And so things like leafy greens and the zinc in them reduces cortisol and boosts testosterone. So that's one of the best things to help rebalance hormones. Yeah, actually, speaking to that,
2: you know, the date night dinner, I don't know if this is just me or if it's because I've been doing intermittent fasting for so long, but in my body, it feels counterintuitive to eat a meal and then have sex right after the meal. I would almost rather I know this is like not normal, but have like sex before a meal. I guess especially if it's like a heavy meal, like definitely it just doesn't seem intuitive to me at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well it yeah a heavy meal does a lot of things. I mean not only we talked about how it can tank testosterone But a really fatty meal actually has a measurably stiffening effect on blood vessels in that two-hour window. And there's a lot of research to basically show that your arterial function is diminished even two hours after having a really fatty meal. But interestingly, an omega-3-rich fatty meal had the opposite effect on blood vessels. So it actually helped them to improve their elasticity and delivery of blood flow. Diving
2: deeper into the fat, because a lot of my audience is low-carb or paleo or even keto. Have you seen studies on like the ketogenic
0: diet and sexual performance, even if it's a higher-fat diet? You just have to be mindful of there there's a couple things that you have to be mindful of when you're doing keto. So things like red meat, that, you know, you have a great source of bioavailable zinc with red meat. You know, there's a, there's a lot of benefits to red meat, for example. What you got to pay attention to with keto is getting enough vitamin C, getting enough potassium, things like that because vitamin C, you know, is in and potassium for that matter are rich in a lot of carbs. And potassium isn't abundant in everything. There's a really short list of foods. We used to, as human beings, get about 10 times as much potassium in our diets as sodium. And now it's just the opposite. We get about 10 times as much sodium as potassium. But if you're on a keto diet, you just have to make sure that you are getting a lot of leafy greens. One thing I talked about in the book is the fact that human beings, we've kind of lost our natural inclination for what foods are good for us. You know, other animals know exactly what to eat. They still have their instincts intact with regard to food. We kind of ask each other what we should eat. And you know, but if you look at other primates, then you will see that they eat a, a lot of leaves. They spend a lot of time eating eating leaves, and in doing so, they have a much more mineral-rich diet and that includes potassium. But most of the foods with a lot of potassium are things like yams with the skins on, potato with the skin on it, mangoes, oranges, bananas. One low carb potassium rich food is leafy greens. You can get potassium from meats, but it's more like 10% for a serving of it. So you really have to reach for the leafy greens if you're doing low carb and you're not eating a lot of fruits and or the, you know the the starchier things. As far as vitamin C, I know some people who are on keto do eat things like berries and some don't. But I would say bring berries in because it's a low-carb, low-glycemic index way to get a lot of vitamin C. And vitamin C is going to protect those blood vessels going to and from the penis and vagina and clitoris and you know helps make them more elastic. And not only that, vitamin C is really important for our mood as well. In research, vitamin C was shown to rapidly improve mood. And when you're thinking about something like sex... Being in the mood for sex, or just having anxiety surrounding sex, you know that can help with all of those those things.
2: That was one of the things I loved that you talked about in your books. Was we just have lost our intuition surrounding food, which it completely makes sense because we're surrounded by foods that hijack. I think our intuition, you know, processed foods and the like. A quick note about the the low carb keto. So I actually personally follow, I do intermittent fasting, but then I eat pretty high carb, low fat. So I eat like a ton of fruit. I eat really high protein, but it's lean proteins. But even when I do do low carb and or keto, I don't make it like super high fat. I think, you know, a lot of people have this idea that keto automatically means really high fat, but you can do low carb and keto and not be slathering on, you know, this exuberant amount of fat, you know, that might work for some people, but I think for others, they might benefit from, you know, not. Going super crazy with the fat,
0: yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Different fats are different, too. i mean, if if you're doing keto, you can have meat and you can have avocados, you can have fish. you can have all those things. You don't need to you know pour a bottle of olive oil on your on your dinner, you know what I mean, which is going to be really concentrated fats. And it's a different, you know more it's a more processed form of fat as well. And what about
2: protein? You do talk in the book about, Animals and how protein affects their sex drive. What do you find with humans and protein?
0: That's a really good question. There's not a lot of research on that, on specifically protein and sex. There's more research on fat and sex. There's research on carbs and insulin and, you know, blood sugar and sex, but not a whole lot uh, that I found on, on protein and sex. Certainly having the basic building blocks. What I did find though, see, there's a lot of research on minerals and sex. You know, that and then some of those are hard to get in certain forms. So we talked about red meat having bioavailable zinc for example, and if you're doing plant-based for example, you have to eat those carbs in a certain way, your your grains because if that's your protein source, you know, if it's coming from legumes and and grains, if you're not soaking or sprouting them, you're not the zinc is not absorbable because it's bound to these things called phytates. That's why traditional people have always soaked and sprouted legumes and things like that. Whereas something like red meat is very available, very absorbable as it is.
2: Especially people with food sensitivities, I think it can be very beneficial to take into account You know the potential for plant anti-nutrients and mitigating a lot of that. Yeah, the notes I had taken from your book about the the animals was that herbivores. I wrote herbivores seek out animals to eat when they can. So uh, apparently, like baboons will eat grasshoppers, chimps will eat baboons, and baboons eating baby gazelles. I guess they did a study where primates were given animal protein and it made them more sexual.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was this one that. Th- that's the thing is that other primates they eat. You know the the amount of Animal protein in their diet varies you know it's you know in some in some species of primates it's like zero percent of their caloric intake in others it's up to ninety percent of their caloric intake so where humans fall on that i mean we're going to be debating this for a very long time a lot it's likely optimal health has some in it, and I know that goes against some of the you know some of the plant-based research out there. But again, just talking about the the bioavailability of some of those nutrients. You were referring to one study where there were slow lorises, which is a a primate. They've had them in zoos and they're often fed a strictly vegetarian diet. And when they introduced cricket dispensers, they had more sex. So that would reflect a better hormonal balance so in their case the animal protein was helping them to have better sexual health friends you guys know i love wine do you love
2: wine i've done a lot of research on wine and i truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest lived populations drink wine the polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits activating anti-aging sirtuins potentially supporting our immunity maybe even encouraging weight loss yep it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight All right, now back to the show. There were so many times I feel in your book where you had mentioned studies, and it was just really funny how they would quantify, like, <laughs> like the rats having like better sex, or like I don't know, it's like what does that even mean? <laughs> like, like I don't know, those studies must have been pretty interesting to conduct. No, I know, right? <laughs> Another food that you talk about at length in your book. Are mushrooms. I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about your thoughts on mushrooms.
0: Oh, yes, I would love to. I love mushrooms. Love, mushrooms are so fascinating to me. I, I probably should have been a mycologist because I just can't stop learning about them, <laughs> about them. First of all, let me tell you that they're great for that entire trifecta of great sex. So they're great for cardiovascular health, blood flow, they're great for nerve health they're great for hormonal health there's a ton of research to support this they're a powerhouse of antioxidants which are going to benefit all three of those you know people don't think of antioxidants as benefiting the endocrine system but they do you know they do help protect and protect those vascular walls They help speed and strengthen nerve conduction for more pleasure and for better orgasms. And the coolest thing about them is the way that they act on the body. What the research shows is that mushrooms actually improve the microbiome. So they improve beneficial species, the populations of beneficial species, and reduce Less beneficial species of microbes in the digestive tract. And of course, this is important because, you know, we're learning more and more. There's a lot more research every year coming out on just how important our microbiome is, which is the delicate balance of microbes, you know, bacteria and other microbes in the digestive tract, on how influential that is to our health. You know, so for example, even something like the risk of cardiovascular disease we don't think we think of that as being maybe genetic maybe you know diet and lifestyle we don't think of it as being something affected by the microbiome but it is so there is research showing that if you have a group of rats who have high risk of cardiovascular disease and then you take their feces and you implant it into the intestines of healthy rats with no high risk of cardiovascular disease they will develop that same high risk of cardiovascular disease So they also did another study, which was interesting. They gave these obese rats reishi mushrooms, and they lost weight. Then they had a new group of obese rats, and they didn't give them reishi mushrooms. What they did do is they transplanted the feces into these new obese rats' intestines, and they too lost weight. So it just demonstrated how the benefit... From these reishi mushrooms was on the microbiome.
2: Yeah, I think the microbiome is so so huge, and I feel like we just only barely get a glimpse of what all is going on with all of that. The mushrooms are fascinating. Is there one that is particularly good for sexual health, or like an aphrodisiac mushroom?
0: You know, it it depends. I recommend uh, cordyceps for a lot of my patients who are coming in for erectile issues for a variety of reasons, but. Things like um, nerve damage, you know, so I have a patient, for example, who had his prostate removed and they spared the nerves, but they, there was some damage in there. So I recommend lion's mane for him because that has the most research on actually growing and repairing nerves. There's a lot of research on mushrooms and, and nerves, but particularly lion's mane for that. But any mushroom you know, culinary as long as it's safe. You know, even white button mushrooms have been shown in research to improve the biodiversity of the microbiome and offer you know offer benefits. So you don't even have to get fancy. But each mushroom kind of has its own benefit. For those who don't like mushrooms, I have a recipe in my book for uh, chaga chai latte, which is so good. It's um, chaga is a mushroom that grows. It's a very woody mushroom, and it grows. Underneath the bark of birch trees, and it's this black knot, and it comes in chunks basically. They used it as a, a coffee substitute in World War II because it has this really pleasant vanilla flavor, and it turns the same color as coffee when you boil it. So, what I do is I make a really strong chaga diffusion, and then I mix it with some fennel and some cinnamon and cloves and cardamom and I put a little honey and almond milk in there, and it's loaded with antioxidants, which are great for sex, and it tastes delicious. It has anti-inflammatory properties, um antiviral properties, and it's overall a really nice, fun thing to add to your to your diet. So listeners, you're going to have to get Christine's book because
2: it does have all of these recipes, so it's an amazing resource. So also in this sphere, We had a question from Claudia, and it's something I was going to ask as well, and we've already touched on it a little bit, but
0: are there foods that really are aphrodisiacs? I have a whole chapter on aphrodisiacs in the book, and I tried to stick with aphrodisiacs that had some research to support their efficacy. They haven't been widely researched, so there's not a lot of money in in that. So the ones that I saw had a few studies. They didn't have a huge body of evidence, but they did have a few studies. So the most widely studied culinary aphrodisiac that was safe was saffron. And there, there are plenty of studies showing that you know, both animal and human studies showing that um, taking saffron increases libido and sexual function in, there are multiple dimensions of, of its benefit as an aphrodisiac. Then things like cloves, there's one study on cloves that shows that that one had an immediate effect. So some of the aphrodisiacs, it was more like you, you know, you take it for two weeks and then their, you know, sexuality was measured, whereas cloves were measured in the two hour window after eating them. And that had, that showed better sex, you know, better sexual satisfaction and and orgasm, I believe was the third, the third thing studied on that. So yeah, there, there are, but again, it, it's subtle and you know, there are, there are herbs that have shown some efficacy. Many of the most potent ones, the safety margin was really questionable. So the amount needed to produce an effective response was kind of dangerously close to the amount that could be potentially toxic.
2: That section of your book, it was fascinating. You really dove deep into all the foods. Saffron, I don't think I've ever actually used saffron like in my cooking or as a supplement. It's really expensive, isn't it, normally?
0: Yeah, because it's the stamen of the uh, crocus uh, plant. So it's this very... There's not a lot of it per plant, so so yeah, it's, that's why it's so expensive. It has a very unique flavor, and it's often used for rice dishes and things like that. And, and it can be it can be very tasty for sure. What about chocolate? So chocolate is one of those things that has this huge reputation as being an aphrodisiac and montezuma used it to pleasure his 50 wives or wait a minute no no he drank 50 cups a day to pleasure his wives he drank a whole lot of chocolate and vanilla he had a whole lot of wives put it that way but there wasn't any research to support it. And there's been a lot of it, actually. All of the studies that I found failed to show that it was an effective aphrodisiac. So even though lots of studies have tried, I, ha- I didn't see any that succeeded. Oh, man. It won't make me give up chocolate, though. I mean, for sure.
2: Claudia's second question was, how about foods that make you taste better? And then actually Jason wanted to know if it was true that pineapple actually makes you taste better.
0: You know, I get asked that a lot and I didn't see any research on that. So I I haven't come across any research that has supported that. Although with the exception of asparagus, I'll have to look at that again. Yeah, I really need to look at that again because I have been asked that a lot. The short answer is maybe. And also, just with a little caveat, I is that remember that the genitals have a biological taste and smell. You know, no matter how clean they are, you know, we have secret- they have secretions, and so you know, it, it may be an acquired taste, but it's definitely one that anybody who wants to be an expert at pleasing their partner should develop an appreciation for that taste. In my opinion, I mean, I there's a chapter on on, in my book on sexual, you know, tips for oral sex, because I do feel like it's a really important part of having the most pleasure in a sexual relationship is especially for female pleasure that's been underserved, learning how to really understand techniques that that can that can lead to her pleasure are important. So So it it doesn't quite answer her question. It's more of a a tangent, I would say. So sorry about that.
2: No, no. I love tangents. Yeah. I I am super curious because I feel like I hear the pineapple thing a lot. Like I feel like that's like an idea out there. So I'm curious about that. And yes, you do have a very deep dive. I mean, pun intended into like oral sex and what you just spoke about with the taste and people's, you know, relationship with that. So it was, I mean, very eye opening and super appreciated. So again, listeners, you're going to have to get the book for that. Also in the aphrodisiac world. So not foods, but like actual supplements. Are there any that have seen, I mean, you talk about a lot in the book, but I think ones that people might think of are things like ginkgo or ginseng or maca. Are there any that have an okay safety margin and are effective?
0: Yeah, yeah, actually, all of those that you mentioned. So, maca, you know, ginseng, all of those have a reasonable safety record, as do cordyceps. There is a a good list of them. I mean, some of the ones that were deemed effective, but, you know, something like corny goatweed, we use it in Chinese medicine. I mean, it is an herb that we use, but there were some safety concerns about its use as an aphrodisiac in higher dosages. I don't know if it was in your book. I feel like this has come up
2: recently in a few different things I've read. Like some, some drug or something that makes people tan, but it also like super
0: like makes their sex drive go through the roof. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I haven't heard of that one. So you get the <laughs> the double bonus of you know you could be tan and yeah, it's definitely come up like in
2: multiple places recently. I've been reading about it. I'll have to look into what that was.
0: I'll have to look. Yeah, I have a list after this show of things I'm going to look up. I know, I know. I remember I read about it like somewhere,
2: and then my friend was telling me an anecdotal story about how their friend took it. I think for like a body competition to get tan, and she, <laughs> and she like literally had to like leave work, and they're like, "Why?" And she's like, "I have to go home and masturbate." <laughs> Because it made like, <laughs> her sex drive goes so through the roof. Um, so I, I'll have to look up what that was. Um, one more question, um, something I touched on, but I did get a listener question about, and it's something I already mentioned, but that's fasting. You do talk a little bit about fasting in the book. Nick wanted to know, does intermittent fasting increase libido? Does it differ between men and women? He says, from the male point of view, I'm doing a 19-5 intermittent fasting pattern and I definitely feel charged and really alive, more alert. I feel an energy I haven't felt for years. I hope I meet someone soon with the same vibe slash life goals so that I can spoil her so much. So intermittent fasting, do you have thoughts on that for sex?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the benefits of intermittent fasting is helping to rebalance leptin, you know, ghrelin and Subsequently, sex hormones. So, you know, when there's one hormone that's out of balance, it's typically a whole cascade of hormones. We rarely get one in isolation, if that makes sense. Intermittent fasting has been shown to do all sorts of things. As you know, we have a whole show on it, but um, definitely rebalancing hormones. So, I am not surprised at all that he's experiencing higher libido because when your testosterone is more optimized, you will have way better, stronger libido. Fasting
2: for the win. I know a lot of my listeners practice intermittent fasting. So, yeah, well, this has been absolutely amazing. Was there any other topics from your book that you wanted to draw attention to
0: for listeners? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot on food in there, but then there's a lot on, you know, things like that we can't really control, like our environmental exposure to. Toxic heavy metals, for example, that comes from our air and our water. You know, I guess EMFs, which you know, we keep getting these, this idea that they're controversial. You know, oh, this is controversial. We don't know if they're having a negative effect, but there's actually decades of research showing that EMFs very much do affect hormones. They affect us neurologically. They affect us endocrinologically. So there's a very strong effect. One of the best ways that you can protect yourself against EMFs is by bumping up your antioxidants because the damage from EMFs and from toxic heavy metals is often in the form of oxidative stress. So boosting up your antioxidants, it'll help protect you. And there are other things that that I talk about in the book as well, you know, just ways to protect yourself.
2: And that actually reminded me of one more question I did have. What do you think about fasting from sex? Like, I know, I feel like guys do this more than women, but like the idea of, you know, going a certain amount of time without sex, do you think that has any health benefits or downsides?
0: I, you know what I think, and I hope, I hope you don't think I'm not answering the question. Uh, <laughs> I would really be in favor of fasting from porn because I feel like porn It it can, it can sabotage our appreciation of reality, you know, in real sex and real people and real bodies and things like that. As far as fasting from sex goes, I mean, I think that's more individual, quite honestly. If you have sex with your partner seven days a week, maybe you don't appreciate it as much as someone who has sex with their partner once a month. I'm um, not that I'm saying that having sex once a month is better. I, I'm definitely not because I, I wouldn't want to be having sex once a month with my partner for sure. But I guess what I'm saying is sometimes taking a break can help you reappreciate sex. One thing that I would like to look into is what abstaining from sex or taking a sexual fast looks like physiologically you know what does that look like in terms of testosterone in terms of estrogen progesterone you know in in terms of other markers biomedical markers i'd be curious to to see for sure i mean sometimes taking a break from sex can help us uh, help us to have a new appreciation for it for sure you know, everybody's libido is different and everybody's frequency, you know, desired frequency of sex is different for sure. So I would say that would probably be pretty individual in terms of how much benefit that would provide and what kind of length of time you would want to go from fasting, you know, fasting from sex. If you're having sex again multiple times a day, that might look very different from somebody who has sex every couple weeks or something.
2: I was listening to an interview with Dave Asprey. I think with John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars Women Are From Venus, who I'm I'm so excited. I'm going to be interviewing him, so that's very very exciting. I'm like I'm like but he has so many books. I'm like, "Oh goodness, like <laughs> I can't read all of them." Um, so I've been trying to speed read through as much as I can, but I think it was their interview and I think they talked about this and he was saying that there were one of them, either Dave or John was saying that there were health benefits to men holding off, but not to women. Yes, I'm not sure. Another thing for our list that we're creating <laughs> to, to go to go down the rabbit hole. But I'm glad that I asked that question more so for your answer about the porn, because I'm glad we touched on that because um, I'm very much concerned about its role in, in modern society and what it's doing to our sexual health and just our experience of relationships with people. So super appreciated to hear your thoughts on that. Well, this has been so amazing. Listeners, you've got to, got to get this book. We only barely scratched the surface of everything that's in it. And like Christine was saying just a few moments ago, she was saying how it covers so much. Like there's diet and there's recipes and way more than what we talked about. But then there is just so much on sex. And um, like we talked about like oral sex and pleasing your partner. And it's just a really, really valuable resource. So I can't thank you enough for that.
0: Any links that you'd like to put out there? How can listeners best follow your work? Sure. I'm at dietforgreatsex.com, and I'm on social media at dietforgreatsex. Sex. Awesome. I feel like I don't follow you. I will follow you right now. And the last question
2: I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for?
0: I am so grateful for my family. Yeah, I'm so grateful to have love. And especially during, you know, COVID and everything, I feel like um, there were a lot of people that my heart really went out to, who had to have a lot of isolation, whereas I've, I've had my family close to me the whole time and my children. So I'm very grateful for that. Thank you for asking. No, oh, that's so wonderful. And now I'm just thinking I'm jealous. If my mom was an acupuncturist,
2: that would be so amazing. Do you do it on your children? Yeah, I did. I did it on my son yesterday.
0: As a matter of fact, he had a headache. That's amazing. That's awesome.
2: Well, thank you so much. Again, thank you for your work. I'm super grateful for what you're doing. I think it's so needed. Hopefully we can talk again in the future because this was wonderful.
0: I'd love to. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie
1: Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information,